welcome to the American Thoracic Society Respiratory Cell and Molecular Biology Podcast. I'm your host, Moore Saller. Today, we bring you the first episode in a three-part series entitled Chatting with the Editors. We sit down with Dr. Karen Ridge, Professor of Medicine and Cell and Developmental Biology at Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, and Dr. Martin Kolb, Professor of Medicine and Pathology and Molecular Medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Ridge, tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how you became an editor. Sure. So uh, I work at Northwestern University in Chicago, and I am a PhD working in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. And so I think that training of being a basic scientist working in a clinical department has really um, provided me a broad training that I can appreciate how the role of science can influence uh, clinical medicine. So I think it became a natural extension of our profession that when you want to self-promote our own field, you have to contribute manuscripts and you have to promote good manuscripts. And so I think part of the development of anyone's career is to come onto editorial boards. And, I, you know, I guess that's how I, my, my role in these uh, journals came to be. Uh, Dr. Cole, what about you? Well, I think the start is just as Karen described it, uh, doing some editorial work, uh, which actually starts with uh, reviewing papers. The first one's likely for your supervisor and not for yourself, uh, and then you become an editorial board member, which means you commit a little bit more to reviewing, and uh, that is uh, highly educational. By reviewing papers, you actually see the mistakes that others make, and you learn from them, and you avoid them in your own work. You also learn how uh, reviewers and editors tick, yeah, so what they look for, uh, and uh, that, that's that's always done. And at some point, you'll find, uh, or you may not find enough joy in doing this kind of work, and you will inevitably be asked at some point to become an associate editor of a journal or then even more. So, so Dr. Cole, what's the one skill you think is the most important for being an editor? Well, being transparent and neutral. Uh, I mean, I've done this job now for about one and a half years. Um, it's not an easy job because you have to disappoint friends and enemies at the same time. Uh, so you have to be able to to take uh, a stance on, on the decisions. But uh, being neutral, looking at what reviewers say, uh, taking into account what your journal wants, uh, which means what priority does this journal have in publishing, uh, and be transparent about it. I think that's that's the key. And, and Dr. Ridge, what about you? What do you think is the most important skill for being an editor? Well, I think, you know, Martin, thank you. You've already touched on what I would agree are the most important skills is uh, to be fair, to be transparent, and to be open-minded about the science that you're reading. But I think um, to function as a qualified editor, I think you also have to read lots of papers and not just uh, – manuscripts or journal articles that are within your own specialty, but also outside of your particular area of expertise so that you can have a broad view of where the field is going and to appreciate that when you receive a manuscript, 
that is at the leading edge or even outside the box of thinking where the, the field is at to be able to recognize that. So I think it's imperative as an editor that we're, you know, constantly reading and updating um, our own knowledge base so that we can critically evaluate manuscripts when they come in. It seems to me as editors, you really have to decide what is important for the field. And so, and so how do you keep up with uh, all the literature that's going on in the field of pulmonary? Well, I don't think it's possible to keep up with everything, but I can tell you some of the things that I do is, you know, of course, I get the table of contents of the number of journals that are directly related to our field. And then I, I also join as many journal clubs as my time will permit because I think journal clubs really are constantly feeding you the most current papers. And it does provide me with the ability to, even if I didn't have the chance to fully read the paper, hear the impact of what the newest research um, is going on in a particular area, whether it relates to immunology in the lung or stem cell biology in the lung. And so that's one way that um, as far as uh, staying abreast of the field that I use. Uh, what, Dr. Cole, what about you? How, how do you manage to stay abreast of all the literature? Uh, you know, that's the same way. You, you re read a lot. Uh, obviously, the job that I do with the European Respiratory Journal is extremely broad because it covers pretty much all areas of respiratory medicine from basic science to uh, clinical uh, cohort studies, uh, opinion pieces. So it is, of not impossible to to stay on on uh, track with everything in that in all these areas. So I I have <clears throat> a number of section editors that represent those different specialties. And uh, when it's about novelty, uh, I need to rely on their judgment for a lot of the calls. Yeah, I mean, I, of course, I have my own special areas where I can make a call myself. But that uh, really depends on the on the specialization and the breadth of a journal that you represent. Yeah, but principally, yes, you should be uh, finding joy in reading stuff and writing, otherwise you are not uh, going to be a good editor. So, so, Dr. Cole, tell me about the manuscript submission process at your journal. Also, we receive uh, probably, I receive probably 10 papers a day, uh, day and, I mean, every day, so about 3,000 per year. And uh, the editorial office checks uh, just the formalities. Uh, once they are passed, they go to the chief editor or the, section, uh, the, uh, the deputy editor. And we <clears throat> look at the papers, uh, try to triage about one in four at that level. <clears throat> Maybe just say, well, this is not novel enough. This is uh, not in the main scope of the journal. So I, these things are often either priority decisions or decisions uh, uh, based on the quality of a paper. Yeah? So sometimes papers are just not written well enough. Uh, sometimes uh, there are problems with registration of a clinical trial, for instance, or no ethics uh, approval for an animal study. So if these things are the case, we just reject directly, and that usually happens within a day, so 24 hours. Uh, for the ones that look good, on first glance, uh, where I cannot judge on novelty, I send them to the section editors, who, again, uh, triage about one in four, which means so about 50% of the papers go to the associate editors, and then they are sent for peer review. Um, 
once you get out for peer review, your chances of acceptance is one in five for the GRJ. Yeah, so we publish about 10% uh, of the submitted manuscripts. And Dr. Rich, you're on the editorial board of, of, a, of a few journals. Is it, is it a similar process, or are there some nuances or differences that you've, you've come across? So um, I'm on the I'm associate editor for the Red Journal, which is the American Journal of Respiratory Cell Molecular Biology, and on the editorial board of the Blue Journal. And the review processes are extremely similar to what Martin just described for the uh, European Respiratory Journal. Um, you know, unfortunately, depending upon the journal, I would say the Blue Journal and Martin Euro European Respiratory Journal are very similar in quality and rejection rates. The Red Journal is a little bit higher in their acceptance rate. Um, so the process only differs in that we also have a reviewing editor on the Red Journal in that uh, once the editor assigns the manuscript to an associate editor, that's also sent to a reviewing editor. And then the decisions to send it out for um, consideration uh, have to come from both the reviewing editor and the associate editor. And that's, that, that additional process, I think, is an important one so that if it's not exactly within your area of expertise, you can give what you think are the strengths and weaknesses of the particular manuscript, and then your, your reviewing and or your associate editor can discuss it briefly before sending it out for review or giving it an immediate reject. And so that extra layer, I think, does help fill some of the gaps in knowledge that some editors may have, particularly since it's a broad set of, of um, manuscripts that come into these journals. I'm also on the editorial board of the FACIP journal, um, and you can imagine that the scope of that journal is even broader. Um, and so I can tell you I would, I'm fiercely trying to introduce having a reviewing editor in that editorial process because when you get to the broad spectrum of manuscripts, it really is difficult to have expertise in everything. And so to have two editors really reviewing the process I think has been you know, quite impactful. So that's how we do it there. And, and so, and so, when you're the when you're the expert, and when you read the manuscript, uh, how do you decide which manuscripts are going to get passed on to the reviewers? Like, what are some of the criteria that you're looking for specifically? Sure. So, I think the first thing is that the manuscript has to be relevant to the journal's area of interest. Um, for example, I'm always surprised at the number of um, non-lung-related manuscripts that we receive in the two lung-related journals, and it and I kind of scratch my head and be like, why did you think that this article on uh, you know, dysfunction in the kidney is going to be of interest to the lung um, journal? So that's the first thing. Then I'm looking for the novelty of the work. You know, is the research area novel? Is it of a current interest to the field? Um, does it have an uncommon method, for example, or an unusual study design, or a topic that's going to be of great interest to the readership? Um, and so once it passes those bars, uh, then I'm looking to ask myself the question is, you know, does the content of the manuscript um, going to advance the field in a manner that hadn't been previously reported? Um, and then I just also want to say that it's always best, obviously, if you have a positive impact manuscript, but there's occasionally that we receive manuscripts that have negative results. And if done well, a negative result can also be a very much interest to the readership as well. So I think um, I, I think that, you know, novelty is probably the most important one and advancing the field. 
And, and Dr. Colby, you sort of talked about this a little bit before, but what about you? Do you, do, you, do, you have, do you have a different opinion or a different approach to how you look at manuscripts, or is it very similar? No, it's very similar. Uh, you have to give each editorial team uh, some uh, liberty in what they like. Yeah? It's not all quality. Uh, I mean, quality is based on peer review and peer assessment, so that's that's the the major criterion for any uh, reputable journal. Uh, but ultimately, we make decisions based on the priority, and that is different for the red journal and for the ERJ and for the blue journal and others. Yeah? So, uh, and that's sort of an issue where where authors sometimes are a little disappointed when they say, "Well, I could address these comments." Uh, that's correct in many cases, but uh, it may still be a priority decision. Yeah? So just imagine you get 10 grants on your desk and you can only get one through. Yeah? So you will have to to uh, reject some grants that you actually find extremely valuable, yeah? but you have always at any given time that comparative paper around and uh, there's no perfect system. Yeah? So I think it, it it's quite possible and likely that uh, I have rejected very good papers that have ended up in better journals than the ERJ even. Uh, and that's that's just the, the problem. It's not the problem. I think it's just a feature of the system. So it's not it's not a perfect system, but we all have subscribed to it in anything we do in science. Uh, that's publishing, that's grant uh, awarding, and uh, we have to accept its benefits and also its limitations. And, and, so, and so, Dr. Cole, what are, what are some of the biggest pet peeves that you find or, or that just sort of irk you or bother you that authors uh, do when they submit manuscripts or in, in the manuscript itself that actually might hurt the, the quality or the review process? Well, sloppiness is never good. Yeah, so you want to be meticulous. Um, poor writing style is never good. Uh, that will usually only be found at the, at the review process. Um, in the uh, the stages where you got major revision or rejected, what is a really a big no-go is uh, to be insulting to reviewers. Uh, if a reviewer doesn't get the point that you want to make, you just have to accept it that you didn't bring, bring the point across. So just like a grant, do better next time. Yeah, being being then uh, uh, insultive to a reviewer who put usually voluntary time into this uh, is never good. I mean, that, that is something that can be quite annoying. It doesn't happen too often, but it happens. And, and Dr. Rich, what about you? Has, has there been things that you've, you've noticed that definitely affect how you perceive a manuscript uh, that, are, that are bothersome or, or, um, or that you know, authors should know about uh, who might be submitting in the future? Sure. So um, I think one of my big pet peeves is uh, typographical errors and spelling mistakes. So as you're, you know, reviewing a quick review of the manuscript that just came in and you see, you know, page after page of, of spelling mistakes and errors, and I think, well, if you didn't put the time in to do the autocorrect, why am I putting the time in and asking additional uh, members of the editorial board to put the time in to review your paper? So. I think it would be important for authors just to like take that extra step and you know hit the word 
word review or the spell check um, and, and get things done right. I think English, um, when English is not your, your primary language, um, to ask a, another uh, colleague to review your, your manuscript so that you do have um, you know, a manuscript that is easily read and um, is using good language skills. Uh, but probably my biggest pet peeve is when they start a sentence out saying, and it was recently reported, and then they give me a reference from like 1985. Um, so I like introductions that are, you know, you know, detailed enough so that you can understand the scope of the work, um, but you know, brief enough as well so that uh, that they're not going way too long and that they're not using these really old uh, references to introduce, you know, the current state of the field. So. That's probably my biggest pet peeve is that, you know, really old references. Uh, do, do either of you have any preferences on, on formatting? I, I know some, there's some, you know, recent idea that we should be trying to include the figures in the text or at least the, the uh, figure legends in, within the figures to make it easier for reviewers. Is that, a, is that a, something that either of you look at or, or that's just sort of a preference of the journal? Um, well, Martin, I'll be interested to hear what you say, but I personally, when I'm reviewing papers, like to have the the figures and the figure legend in one separate section. Um, like when I'm training my own um, postdocs and grad students, I always say to them, if you look at every figure, you should be able to figure out the story of this paper just by looking at the figures and getting to read the figure legends to understand what the impact of this paper was going to be. So when the figure legends are separate from the figures, it, I think that makes it harder to do um, a good read of, of, the, of the manuscript. But truth be told, you know, for the different boards that I'm on, every journal has it differently, and you just adjust to whatever the style is in front of you, and you just do a good review. So um, it, in the end, it doesn't really impact an editorial decision. Dr. Cole, what about you? Is it sort of a similar answer? I would think it's a similar answer. You, you know, you have to respect some of the things that journals just do traditionally their way. <clears throat> and uh, as an editor, you you're, you come and go, right? So, I mean, you have your term, and that term you can, you can influence uh, some of the things. Uh, it's mostly the content, yeah? So there will inevitably be uh, a little bit bias on, on what an editor likes, yeah? That is less... Uh, so for associate editors, because they're usually chosen and appointed based on what they specialize in. Uh, but <clears throat> you will not change much of these uh, formalities that uh, journals like. Yeah? So for instance, we at the EHA, we had <clears throat> traditionally a 200 word limit for an abstract. Most other journals have 250. And <clears throat> I must say, even for me, it was pretty annoying if you have to reformat the, the abstract then as well. Um, so we have changed that to 250 words now, <clears throat> which is more in line with what other journals do. But if they like it embedded in the text or as a separate sheet, uh, that's a journal preference. I, I would go with Karen. Yes, I think reading the story out of the images, that's usually what I would expect. Uh, and that makes me uh, read and review and a paper a bit easier. Yeah, but other people may have different perspectives here. Um, so, so Dr. Cole, what, what happens if um, there's a disagreement either amongst reviewers or between reviewers and the, the authors? How do you resolve those? 
Well, if it's outrageously different uh, and the author make a good point about it, <clears throat> then you may uh, uh, get an arbitrating editor uh, to just have a fresh look and look at everything. Um, my principle uh, is always that if a reviewer who has expertise in the field <clears throat> does not get the message, a reader will even less likely get the message. So uh, that always means that uh, the reviewer is more likely right than the author. Yeah? Uh, I mean, if an author can clarify it <clears throat> in, a, in a revised version of the manuscript, then, then fine. Yeah? But I think authors have to know that <clears throat> no journal has the obligation to publish anything. Yeah? So we uh, do our best to uh, provide excellent feedback to uh, select the pa papers that are best suited for our respective journals and uh, then hopefully reject the ones that we don't want quickly enough. Where a lot of dissatisfaction comes is when you have a paper under review for three months <clears throat> then you get one half warm review bag and the, the summary to conclusion we don't like it. I mean that's something that we try to avoid and uh, that's one of the things I closely look after in in uh, in uh, my journal. Dr. Rich, is a similar answer for you? Uh, yeah, it really is. And so, Martin, I I completely agree with you that you know you have to take a look at what the two reviewers have to say, and then bring in a third reviewer if they really are on polar ends of the decision making spectrum uh, with still valid points. Um, and I think it's also important as the editor that you, you read what your reviewers had written and make sure that the comments that they're giving are professional and constructive and will give the value add back to the authors of that manuscript, particularly when the manuscript might be coming from more junior people. I think the role of the editorial board is really to kind of uh, act as mediators between the reviewers and the and the authors and to provide constructive feedback that are focused on the hypothesis that was being tested within the, the manuscript itself. And then um, Martin touched on something else and that's those uh, those lingering uh, reviewers who you know, keep promising you like, oh, I'm gonna get this finished by the end of the day or the end of the week. And I think the other role as editors is just really to um, minimize the the stress and the anxiety of the authors and the reviewers. Um, you know, the authors are waiting for their papers to get published and the reviewers are often providing those reviews on their own time. And so I think we need to provide a process that is going to make it as streamlined as possible for, for both people on, on each side of that, um, of those roles. And so I think as editors, we need to build into a process that kind of streamlines things so that we can turn manuscripts around in a very timely process. You know, so at the Red Journal, for example, we're trying to push out papers in under 21 days. Um, at the FACIP Journal, we have about 14 days um, to turn around um, papers from the time that they're submitted to the editor to the time that we're sending back a decision to um, those authors. And I think if we can do it in a way that we take out some of that that stress on both the authors and the reviewers, I think that's the, the real true role of the editorial board. And, and so, um, Dr. Ridge, what's some advice you would give 
for junior investigators uh, submitting uh, manuscripts to journals um, that you've that's, that have that have advice that either you've gotten or advice that you would give to others. Um, you know, I think uh, when you're looking at a manuscript, and uh, I'm sure Martin's load is, you know, different than mine, but um, depending on any given day between the four boards that I sit on, I might get I might get ten papers um, in my inbox. Martin probably gets ten papers every day, but now you've got ten papers, and you have to quickly assess um, what the content of that paper is. And so the first thing is I always tell people is that you need a title that's simple but eye-catching that's going to convey, you know, the essence of the study along with um, the importance or the impact of that study. And that, that title along with the abstract has to draw me in as a reader and tell me how your particular manuscript is going to be novel and is going to advance the field. And, and if there's something that was missing in that abstract, then the letter that went along with your manuscript also then needs to be informative. And so I think that's the first thing. So if, if I'm not catching what your manuscript is about, either by your abstract or by really well-done figures, then you've done yourself a disservice. Um, so I think that would be my off-the-cuff answer as far as the best thing to tell a junior investigator in preparing a manuscript. No, no, that's great. Uh, Dr. Cole? I, I think Karen touched it off. I mean, there's, <clears throat> no one is born as the king or queen of writers. You learn, uh, you do your mistakes, you should learn from them. Uh, reviewers should point them out. Uh, your supervisor should help you there. So I think uh, there is no no golden path. Uh, uh, there are a lot of different paths, but the key is really to <clears throat> take learning out of the process. And uh, I mean, good journals. It's just like good grants. Uh, the success rate is one in eight, one in ten. So you have to try eight times statistically to get one through, <clears throat> and that's just uh, the truth. Yeah, but just make sure you learn from the process. Yeah, because people put their effort in. Editors are not really paid for the time they put in. Uh, they usually get a little bit of an allowance, so it's mostly. Uh, time that we spend uh, on our own backs, uh, we enjoy it and we, of course, have all one thing in mind to just make things better. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, this is really insightful. I think this is going to be very really helpful for many people listening. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. Tune in next time when we interview Professor Keesley Jenkins.